You know what? Nobody makes it alone. But there's a reason that some people can get investors to get on board or bosses to believe in them, why others struggle in that area. And the reason has a lot less to do with experience, a lot less to do with pedigree or some polished plan for approaching it. In short, backable people seem to have some hidden quality that inspires others to take action on their ideas. We chalk it up to some natural talent or charisma or some it thing. But I tell you what, my guest today had that same epiphany and wanted to know if it, this this magic thing, could be learned. And my guest today is Sunil Gupta. Now, Sunil is the founder of Rise, which is a health uh, company that he sold. He's on the faculty at Harvard. And today we're talking about a bunch of things about the psychology behind uh, helping people understand your idea, pitching, if you will, helping people um, connect with your big dream, whether that is starting a new company, shifting careers, whatever it may be. Today's episode is a, a, a winner and I can't wait for you to meet Sunil. And we do talk about his new book, which is right here called Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a chance on you. So I'm going to get out of the way and let's get into the conversation. Hey, before we get into the show, I've got a quick announcement. My best-selling book, Creative Calling, is now more than 18 months old. It's crazy to think that. But thanks specifically to support from you, this community, the book has been shared and gifted and highlighted and has been published in, in all kinds of different languages around the world. I want to thank you for applying these concepts in the book to your life, for sharing the stories, all of your career changes, failures, and successes on the path to designing and living your best life. So if you don't have the book, I have to encourage you to get a copy. Again, it's called Creative Calling. It's available anywhere books are sold. And I've put my entire heart and soul all of my experience around creativity, around entrepreneurship, pursuing your dreams, getting unstuck, experiences from my own life and the lives of dozens of the top creators and entrepreneurs that I know that I, I call my dear, dear friends. It's all in this book. So if you don't have a copy, I would love it if you would pick one up. And part two, if you do have a copy and right now you're going, yeah, Chase, check that box. I already got it when, you first, when it first came out. I'm one of the early adopters. Again, I want to say thank you. And it would mean the world to me if you would leave a review at Amazon or wherever you picked up the book. By writing a review, you are actively contributing, not just to the success of the book, you're exposing your community to the lessons and tactics, the experiences that I aggregated together in Creative Calling. And I believe that you will be directly inspiring your peers to live their best life in support of their career, hobby, and dreams. Now, in the meantime, I'm going to get out of the way and let you get back to the show. But again, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. I look forward to you hearing more about your experience with Creative Calling. But now, let's get into the show. Sunil, welcome to the show, my man. It's great to have you. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's good to be here, Chase. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the new book. Well, thanks. You know, it's funny because when I was thinking about writing it, uh, I don't know if I told you this before, but I hadn't written a book before. I had no idea how to do it. Brand new creative project. So where do I go? 
I go to Creative Live to figure out how to do this thing. Yes. And 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 and, and I remember this is maybe you know this is years ago, but I watched the class with Tim Ferriss and Neil Strauss. Amazing. And, and it was and it and it set all of the initial groundwork for me writing this book, like all the tips, all the things they talked about, and in fact. I ended up featuring both of those guys in this book. I was just going to so, say, so, so I know, I know they're both in there. This is, uh, this is amazing. It sounds planned. What a way to start a podcast. Um, I don't need to do a read. I don't need to do creative life sponsorship read for this episode of the show. <laughs> um, now I, I was going to ask you, um, you know, Tim comes up a couple of times. He comes up in some of the PR materials around it, but uh, before we get into the book, Again, I love to feature people when they've got new material out in the world. But let's go back to you know your your roots. You got some Harvard roots, um, but let's go back further than that. Let's go back. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know how you came to be interested in um, startups, uh, how you became an entrepreneur. Uh, a little bit about the backstory behind that. Just I like a little grounding, a little orientation to start yeah. off shows. Uh, and if you if you're just uh, tuning in here and you're walking down the bike path or riding on the bike path or walking down the walking path or maybe sitting on a park bench, uh, you're commuting. Again, um, we're sitting here with Sunil. He's going to tell you a little bit about his backstory. So let's get into it. Yeah, you know, early early in my career, I, I started out, out as a writer. I was working for the Democratic National Committee, uh, and you know, I was I was I was speech writing mainly, and so I found myself backstage in Boston, the Democratic National Convention. Um, and if you're backstage at a convention, it's sort of all the usual suspects. You know, at that time, it was like John Kerry and, uh, you know, Al Gore and, and the Clintons. But there was one person that nobody really recognized, and it was a state senator from Illinois who happened to be giving a big speech that night. And uh, I watched Barack Obama deliver this speech, and just and just as got as the world seemed to be watching him, I was sort of backstage almost watching the world. And what I saw was this just electric wave of, you know, current almost ripped through the audience. And I became that night one of, you know, I think millions of young people who became fascinated with Barack Obama. Um, so much so that when, you know, it became clear he was going to he was going to run. I, I, I went to Chicago and and started working on his campaign, knocking on doors in places like Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, and got involved in, in what was happening at headquarters as well. And. Uh, that really kind of pulled me into to tech in a different kind of way. Um, you know, it was sort of this this blend of activism in tech. And as a result of that, I started to meet, you know, people who I don't think I would have ordinarily have met, one of whom was Reed Hoffman, who was also interested in this intersection of activism and tech. And at the time, Reed was was uh, chairman at Mozilla. Um, he had started LinkedIn and he was CEO of LinkedIn, but he was also spending time at Mozilla. And he and he and he thought that that could be a really interesting fit for somebody like me. Um, so we started talking about the company and I went out and I visited and I fell in love with with what I saw and I decided to join. And and that that kind of set, I think, the, the, the framework for this sort of career that. Uh, you know, certainly my family really doesn't understand, <laughs> which is which is you know kind of a blend of activism and and tech and writing. Um, you know, I've, I've run for public office now. Um, I've started a company, a startup of my own called Rise, which focuses on healthcare, one-on-one -on -one health coaching, which we ended up selling to One Medical, and and now I've written this book. 
<laughs> wow. We got we got superstar entrepreneurs dropped in there. Uh, you, you, the fact that your family doesn't understand you, I want to go back to that for a second <laughs> before we get into the meat of this, uh, because as you know, so many people are listening and watching are uh, have visions and dreams and goals. And right now they're parents or their career counselor, they said, you know, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer or heck, you just need to do something that I understand because that's what makes me feel good as your parent, guardian, uh, spouse, partner, career counselor. I need to know what you're doing. So I feel good about you. But uh, clearly when you say, yeah, there's this intersection between activism and technology and, and writing that is a sweet spot for me. And I'm guessing that the people in your family were like, uh, Sorry, uh, none, none of what you said, neither of those things, none of those things are a job in and of themselves. And certainly combining them is not one plus one equals three or, or one plus one plus one equals four. This is like, I don't get it. So how did you explain I, that to you, some well, of no, your, I, the people that are close to you? Well, I get it all the time. I, and, and, and I don't know if I have a clear explanation, but I will tell you something that you said has actually really resonated with me and I plan on using it more often, which is you talk about the difference between the map and the compass. Yes. Right. And and I think that, you know, oftentimes we want this master plan, right? And we want to make sure that every single dot that we lay down connects to the other dot. But I love I love your metaphor of the compass where it's like, well, what's the next best thing? What am I where am I right now? And what's the next right move for me? And that's that's kind of how I've I've tended to sort of I think live live my life. It's interesting because I and I didn't mention this, but while I was in Chicago, I did go to law school as well. And <laughs> and, I, and I did not. And, yeah, I, I, you know, and it's funny because I, I I went back to my reunion, uh, and it was a it was a ten year reunion. I went there recently, and I'm hanging out with some some of my friends from law school, and some of them are quite happy practicing law, but I will tell you that quite a few of them are not, and. I, and one in particular, I went and grabbed drinks with him afterwards, and we were talking, and he's like, man, I'm just miserable right now. And I'm like, well, why don't you just go do something else? Go do something different. And we kind of had this back and forth, and it was actually a little bit more intense than I, I intended it to be because I, I wasn't trying to judge him or anything like that, but I think he felt I think he felt judged. And eventually, he just kind of like snapped, and he's like, I'm doing this because I have a law degree. Right. Like I'm practicing law because I, I have a I have a, I have a fucking law degree. Right. And I'm not going to I'm not going to go do something else. Like I invested the time in doing this. And, um, you know, it really made me think of this story that um, I, I was told when I was a kid. And it was it was it was the Buddha who had who had gathered his disciples around him. And he, and he told the story of a man who who arrives at a river that is way too choppy to cross. And so he builds this really robust raft in order to cross it. And after months of work, he finally has a, ro a robust enough raft where he can get across the river. And so he gets to the other side and he knows the rest of his journey is now on foot. So the question that Buddha asks his disciples is like, does he then pick up the raft and does he carry it the rest of the journey? Or does he leave the raft at the side of the river? And of course the disciples say, well, no, he, he leaves the raft at the side of the river, right? But Buddha's point is like, we oftentimes, we build this raft and then we feel like we have to carry it the rest of the way, right? We have to carry it on our heads. And oftentimes I think that that's true. We, we have a tough time detaching from the raft when it comes to 
bad things in our lives, like abusive, past abusive relationships or things that we want to forget and leave behind, but also good things, relatively, you know, things that were actually success stories. We feel like, well, we then have to carry that on our head and connect whatever happens next to that thing instead of leaving it behind. Um, and I guess I've never really had an issue with that, which is why I think the, the map versus the compass makes so much sense. Yeah. And just to recap for anyone who may be new, uh, the map versus compass, uh, that came from my world and, and, uh, specifically my book creative calling is around you know a, a a map is a is a specific path that tells you how to go you need to you know it's like directions right you go left on 24th and right here and then if you get off the map or if you get off the path rather you're like oh my gosh you know the map is uh i'm off the map right now what's happening versus the compass is just a general direction and as long as you're imperfectly walking in the in the general direction that you know you need to go north then gosh you're making progress and the distinction between those two can be simple uh, or su and, and subtle, or it can be profound because for the person who is reliant on this map that we were all sold, like if you go to this school and get these grades and then get this job, you're going to have this level of success and happiness and fame and money and all those things. But not only does that not match anyone's reality that I've ever met, it's actually a counterproductive one because it teaches us to panic when we lose track of the map or we're off the map or where there isn't a map or where the map that we have bought or been sold rather is busted. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but the, the, the point that you made uh, about the Buddha story is, I think it's fascinating because we do carry so many things forward with us and, um, many of them, which don't serve us or others, we feel like we have to, um, does this, you know, why, I mean, obviously, this is in the germane to the story with your friend at law school. But how has this played a role in your life? Did you have no problem bailing on lawyerdom because it just didn't serve you? And are there other examples? Is this an easy thing for you? And clearly, it played a role because you're telling us a story about it, and we see so many people who don't. And your friend from law school being one. Yeah. Yeah. Give me one I mean, le le one level deeper here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess um, the, the the path the path has been from for me from writing to, you know, law to tech to politics, back to now writing, um, and I guess it's just kind of been always sort of a, a a you know a step back moment of kind of what feels right right now, right? Like what what's what what makes sense at this point, and I and I guess. Um, you know, the analysis that I never really kind of go through is how does the past really connect to the future? Yeah. Like, I, 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 I guess I don't feel that pressure to connect the dots. Um, and in the end, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe I'll look back and be like, well, you should have, you should have connected the dots. I don't think I will. Um, actually our, our common, our friend Taylor had a pretty good, inter interesting metaphor for this. You know, he called it the, the, the architect versus the archeologist, you know, the architect has to sort of build, you know, has a, has a, has a blueprint and, and will build the building. Right. And no matter mm -hmm. what, that's the building they're going to build. And, and the archeologist is sort of goes on a dig and, and focuses on that dig and then, and then, you know, goes to the next dig. And, and I guess at the end of the day, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think, end my career with, with this sort of almost like bag of, of things that I found, right. Rather than sort of a one building that I can and point to and say, Hey, I spent my career building that. 
I'm I'm inspired and I, I I'm I think this is the thing we're I'm stumbling on this. I didn't want to go too deep here in my notes, but like I, this is a real thing. Like what we're uncovering right here, this is like early on here. And again, we we can talk about this. There's a part of the the opening to the book where you talk about incubation time. I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but how how this is all tied together for me is people we have and this is very buddhist but we have um an attachment uh conditioning is the way that they talk about it in at my wife's uh practice she's she studies under a buddhist uh, at a buddhist monastery and we are we believe that all these stories that we have about ourselves that I came from this background and I went to this school and like your friend did the law degree and that, that that somehow has to play a role on the next thing that you do. But the reality is all of us, whether you're, again, you're commuting or running right now or sitting on a park bench or laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, you could do anything right now. You can take a right turn and jump up and down and, you know, rub your belly and pat your head. You can literally do anything right now. And if you were told not to celebrate, well, you can start to celebrate. If you were raised in a family that didn't show emotion, you can scream at the top of your lungs right now. All these things can be true for us, and yet we bring along so much unnecessary baggage. Hmm. I think this is I think this is fascinating, um, and that you're you're you've articulated that. Why do you think that you you are um, not attached to that when so many people are? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the idea of you know, throwaway work. Are you okay with this idea that you did all this work and it, and it, and it, it ultimately it's not actually throwaway work. It did help you in some way, right? It did. It did actually inform you in some way, even if it showed you what you don't want to do. Like I did spend time working in law and I, I don't regret that because I, I realize that it's absolutely not what I want to be doing with my life. I don't consider that to necessarily be a complete waste of time. Um, yeah. You know, it, it shaped me in some ways. Um, but I think this idea that your past can influence your future, your past can inform your future, mm-hmm. but your past doesn't determine your future is really what sticks with me. Well, let's shift to one of the things you, you get to early on in the book. Uh, again, the um, <laughs> if you're just now joining or I haven't said it, the, the title of your book is Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You. And again, whether you're trying to get your first job or a new job or raise venture capital or get someone to buy the product or the thing you're putting out in the world, just to pay attention when they wouldn't otherwise. All these things is, are examples of being backable. But early on in the book, there's you have a, a really clear artic- <clears throat> articulation of this concept of incubation time. And so many, may, may, let's just pretend we're your friend who's in law school and what we might say to them, they're like, man, I am a lawyer because I went to law school. And you're like, yeah, but what did you learn in, in law school? You learned so many things. You learned how to write well, how to research, how to yeah. communicate, articulate a point, any of those things. And all of those things really are things that you have in your backpack that are useful things. You might not be the Buddha and want to set the, the, the raft down, but raft might be lawyerness. But all of the things that you learned, all the skills in making the raft or in how strong you needed to be to carry it, all those things are valuable. And in some ways, they go into what you're going to do in your next chapter. So 
how is this true for you? You you clearly you wrote about it, you know, yeah. convinc- convincing yourself that that you needed time in order to sort of stew in all of these different ideas that you have about what you want for this one precious life. Give yeah. us a little bit of a, a narrative around that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I first started writing the book, and Backable is all about, you know, why is it that certain people have this mysterious it quality, this ability to 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 have us take a chance on them, right? And even when even when they don't have an obvious idea, or even if they're not the obvious candidate for a job uh, or a project, we still kind of feel motivated and inspired to to give them a shot. And I wanted to understand what what this it quality was. And so, you know, I've spent the past five years now studying hundreds of backable people from all different walks of life, from Oscar winning filmmakers to Michelin star chefs to iconic founders, military leaders. And uh, what I found is that, you know, if you rewind the clock on their careers, most of the time they actually did not start out by being backable. They weren't born backable. They they sort of learned this set of qualities along the way. And that's good news, I think, for us, because that means that any one of us can 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 learn how to make ourselves more backable. And so what this book is 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 sort of these seven most surprising qualities of of what it is that truly does make someone backable. and And the one that you were just talking about is this idea of convincing yourself first. and that's that's step number one. It's quality number one. And when I was writing the book, I, I kind of assumed that I was going to find that backable people were going to have, they were, they were all going to be charismatic. I, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, you certainly had, you know, folks who came off as much more extroverted and gregarious and, and good inside a room, but many, many people did not, you know, they were much more shy, much more quiet, um, just not the not the poster child for charisma. You know, just a quick example of that. If you if you go look up the the number one most popular TED talk of all time, what you might be surprised to find is is actually a very unTED like presentation. Uh, it's a brilliant talk given by Sir Ken Robinson on creativity in schools, over sixty five million views. But he's got like one hand in his pocket. He sort of meanders on and off script. He he kind of he he stands naturally with a bit of a slouch. And, and, and it's just not what you would imagine for, a, you know, a charismatic presentation. And there are plenty of examples of this. What I found is that it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first. Mm-hmm. And then they let that conviction shine through in whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. But I think the mistake that we make sometimes is that when we come up with an idea, inspiration strikes, and I think this happens to all of us, we're, we're with friends or with colleagues, and all of a sudden, you know, an idea comes up, and we feel like the need to blurt it out immediately, right? And, yeah. then we, and then we don't get the reaction that we're looking for. A lot of the time, what happens is we'll put that idea in a drawer, a mental drawer, and we'll walk away from it. One of the things we found is that inside big companies, when we when we paid attention to how ideas bubble up inside larger organizations, what we found is that most ideas actually don't get killed inside the conference room. They actually don't get killed inside formal meetings. They Most ideas actually get killed inside the hallways, around water coolers, or through casual conversations. Most of the time, because we end up sharing the idea before it's actually ready to be shared, don't get the reaction that we want to get and walk away from it. So what backable people tend to do is they tend to almost do this very quick little decision tree, which is 
before blurting out the idea, they ask themselves, do I have high conviction for this or not? Like, is this a peanut M&M where you can squeeze it and it won't crack immediately? Or is this a chocolate M&M where as soon as you squeeze it, it cracks, it cracks. If it's a, if it's a peanut M&M, then by all means, share it. You know, there's no time like the present. But if it's a chocolate M&M, what backable people tend to do is, is take incubation time. They resist that temptation to share the idea in that moment. And they take some quiet time to really nurture their idea and put a peanut inside before they share it. So Neil, I'm just now connecting an interesting set of dots based on what you said right there. And, and, uh, something you mentioned earlier about being inspired to write the book from, uh, Tim Ferriss and, um, uh, Neil Strauss and the conversation they had at creative live and Tim's class called the four hour life. Um, and they both, if you think about it, they're both amazing at everything they do, but, uh, writing in particular, right? They're insane writers, multiple number one New York Times bestsellers. Yeah. And they had ideas, went around and tested those ideas. Tim, you know, built the company and basically lived the four hour life traveling the world and had a business that was running on autopilot. Um, and Neil did a bunch of research. He had these ideas and then went and researched them when he found them to be true, wrote, you know, a best selling book. So this idea of marination of, um, testing your peanut. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And this idea of yeah. being, of believing deeply in something. And, and let's go back to the founder concept, right? The, when you hear someone talk about something that they have deep conviction around, it's almost as if it's already true. Yeah. Right? What were some of the other characteristics you found? Cause I know you, you know, you talked to a bunch of different founders and you yourself are an investor in things like Airbnb and a number of others, but what are some of the things that the characteristics that you found in people who obviously had convinced themselves, but let's share, share with us some other characteristics. Yeah. You know, that, that what you just brought up is a really interesting point, which is there's almost, there almost seems to be a sense of, Hey, this, this is already true when, when they, when they shared the idea. One of the things that I think that, uh, as, as, uh, with any new creative idea, we sort of want to talk about why it is new, why it is exciting. And, and, and that's good. That's a, that's a good thing, you know? Um, but what I found is that backable people tend to really also talk about why an idea feels inevitable. And in some ways what they're, what they're doing when you talk about an idea's inevitability is you're almost removing yourself from the equation a little bit. You're actually removing your idea from the equation to begin with. And you're talking about like, where's the world headed? Like what's happening right now? And, you know, let's paint that picture first. And then let's talk about how the idea actually fits in. And it's a little bit counter, I think, especially to sort of Silicon Valley types, because yeah. oftentimes we want to talk about why our idea is going to change the world, right? Whereas I think most backable pitches, though, come from the point of view is this is the way the world is changing already. And this is the way that my idea really fits into that puzzle, fits into that equation. Um, and it just tends to work, I think, just so much better. Because look, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, investors are pretty risk averse too. you know, like I think venture capitalists are sort of seen as like, you know, risk takers that are, that are constantly taking risk. I don't think they enjoy taking risk. I don't think anybody really enjoys the risk side of the business. It's something that they accept. You know, it, 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 if you follow like Daniel Kahneman's research on just all human beings, you know, with he, he published, you know, a Nobel Prize winning study that showed us that 
you know, as human beings, the, the pain of losing is, is twice as powerful as the pleasure of winning, right? And that's the mindset that you're, that you're sort of, I think, you know, trying to convince somebody that to, you know, buck and say, I'm going to take a bet on something new. Um, and again, the way we do that isn't just by talking about why it's new and shiny. We do, we do it by talking about why it's inevitable. That's the thing, like as if it was already true. Yeah. Now, I want to put a pin in this because I, I also want to shift gears and go to your bio for a second. Um, you know, you've you've created Rise, you sold that company, and before then, you have also, and in your bio it talks about this, been known as the face of failure for yeah. the New York Times. Yeah. So in a small twist of fate here, give us a little bit of, <laughs> sure. give, give us a little backstory there and, and, uh, help us reconcile, you know, clearly if you have, uh, experienced that failure and that here you are getting a book is, sounds like the, you know, people's lives aren't over, but give us that story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I certainly have. I mean, if you, if you had, you know, success column and failure column, I certainly, the failure column certainly is longer for me. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think Bill. I think it was Bill Gates that said that success is a lousy teacher, and if that's if that's true, and I think it is, then like I, I consider myself to be very very well educated. I, I got this call from uh, an organizer of a conference called FailCon, wh which literally stands for Failure Conference, and it's <laughs> and it's this humbling experience when when somebody calls you and says, "Hey, like I'm organizing this conference on failure, and would love for you to be the keynote speaker." <laughs> Uh, and, and so I, I do this speech and I have no idea that there's this writer from the New York Times in the audience. So so flash forward, I'm sitting in my apartment at that time. I was living in San Francisco and that day's New York Times is this full length feature story on failure. And, and my face is at the top of the story. And, and, it, and, it, and it's 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 interesting because. Failure became a topic. You'll you'll remember this, Chase, where all of a sudden, like everybody was talking about failure. Yeah. And so that article went viral, and there was a, there was literally a period of time. I tested this in incognito windows, where you could Google failure, and my face would have been one of your top search results. <laughs> um, and and you know, I, I so. You know, when something like that happens, you can you kind of have a couple of options. You can either you can either sort of bury your head in the sand, or you can try to figure out how to make some meaning out of it, do something with it. And a friend of mine, a good friend, convinced me to you know make some meaning out of it. And so what I did is I I started to email people, who, you know, I I didn't know who I admired, um, and and use this article as an icebreaker. So what I would do is I'd email people and I'd say, hey. Um, as you can see from this article, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but would you be willing to grab, you know, 15 minutes with me to give me some advice? And the response rate on that email was just much higher than anything I'd ever experienced before. Um, I, I just think people appreciated an email that, that wasn't like talking about success, wasn't talking about resume. It was more kind of like, hey, like this funny thing happened. People got a kick out of it. They thought it was funny. But but the, the more important thing is when I was having these conversations, they were much more open and honest about their own failures. And I guess I began to realize something that, you know, may be obvious to others, but wasn't to me at the time, which is which is like we see the current version of who these people are, 
these people we admire. We don't see what happened in the past. We don't see the mistakes. We don't see the failures. We don't see the setbacks. And and when I started to realize that, um, it really inspired me to say, hey, like I can, you know, I can bounce back from any of this, right? I I, I can I can learn I can learn some of these things that these guys have learned. I can incorporate them and I can start to turn things around. There's something about that, that vulnerability and embracing it. I just think of the, just people in my life who have, um, just openly acknowledged, uh, one comes to mind right now, just because I, um, I just, I, I was in my email before we jumped on today and, uh, got an email, email from someone who's also been on this show, uh, Sophia Amoruso. And she has arguably like celebrated her, um, you know, whether you consider them failures or not, just very publicly, like her girl boss, um, first of all, was nasty gal. Uh, and then, and then girl boss, both of which, um, were, um, their demise was shared pretty publicly and she just owned it. And it's just been an incredible, seems like a, um, an incredible boost for her, just the, like the, the humanity and the connection and also the resilience. Like to me, those are experiences that Mm. signal, um, you know, being uh, a phenomenal human and a great entrepreneur and someone that you'd want to, you know, forgive the analogy here, just go to battle with like whether they're your spirit, spirit animal or in business. Um, and you know, you talked also in the book about pitching all kinds of investors and getting rejected. Is there some sort of a pattern where you got confidence the more you were rejected and then were able to stand up and was, you know, that email I'm guessing seeing the disproportionate positive response from sharing a, an email that most people would hide under, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the people that we just, that we were talking about earlier is Tim Ferriss and, you know, Tim gave me some really good feedback during all of this which was, you know, at, at the time while this article had come out, I was also pitching my company, which was called Rise. It was, we were doing one-on-one nutrition coaching. Um, and Tim had just written the four-hour body and he was also investing in companies. And I was like, Tim would be the perfect investor for something like this. And so I ended up getting lucky enough to pitch him. And um, he ended up passing <laughs> like dozens of other investors at that point. But but he he was great. I mean, gave me some great feedback. And, and in particular... The way that I had pitched him is I had spent basically the entire the entire deck walking him through the market, like talking about how big this could possibly be, right? The rising rates of obesity and hypertension and and diabetes. And then at the very end of the pitch, I I told the story of my father who had his first he had he had a triple bypass surgery when he was in his forties, wow. rushed to the, rushed to the hospital, emergency surgery. I was about nine years old at the time and I went to the hospital and I remember feeling like my dad had just aged like 20 years overnight. And when we left the hospital, we got a couple of pieces of paper on how to basically how to live our life, what, what changes we needed to make at home. And on the paper were things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we, we were an Indian family. You know, we didn't, we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. You know, and there's nothing on that paper about chicken tikka masala or you know, the things that we did at home. And so lucky for us, insurance kicked in and helped pay for 
uh, some of the cost of a, of a nutritionist to help really customize our lifestyle at home and really make some of these things that needed to happen stick. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, that that's the reason that my dad is still alive today is because of that. All, all those habits and behaviors that we built at that time are still things that he keeps intact today. And I'm telling Tim this story and he's like, let me ask you a question. Why the hell did you save that story to the very end of the pitch? Like, you should be telling that story up front. Because it's, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't get pulled into an idea on the numbers. We get pulled in by, by a story, right? And, and that's a good one. And you should tell that one up front. And then you can zoom out and talk about, you know, the millions of people out there that are going through their own version of what your father went through, right? You can talk about the market from there, but, but flip the order and, and tell that story first. And so I did. And, uh, you know, even though Tim passed, I took that piece of advice into other, into other meetings with, with other investors. And I could just tell immediately, which is that one tweak, just that ordering switch, they were responding very differently. I think it's the story that pulls us in, and then I think it's the substance that keeps us there. It's so true. I, I couldn't underscore that enough with my own experience, like starting off with the, some compelling story. Like people's brains go from like the crocodile brain first, right? The Like my attention, my attention. Mm, I need a reason to get sucked in to even listen to the numbers and the graphs and the all of the other details that you talked about, obesity rates and, uh, you know, diabetes rates and whatnot. This concept, we are, we are wired for story. We're storytelling yeah. machines, right? Yeah. We're just like we're creating machines. Part of what we're creating so many times in a piece of art is a narrative, right? This, yeah. And, and we, 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 we lose that. I'm going to go back to a thing you said earlier, which is uh, I'm skipping a couple steps, but as uh, just as a reminder, the the book backable is your deconstructing the folks who you found in your studies um were backable had that and it wasn't just care it wasn't just charisma it wasn't that they were an extrovert it wasn't it was that they had a handful of steps seven i think is the right yeah. number yeah and y- you've sort of articulated them and so i'm going to you know, one of the early ones is, is, you know, you're, you're so convinced yourselves, but I want to go up to this because we've already talked about it. This step four around making it feel inevitable. Yeah. Does, does this have roots in, in psychology or human psyche? And I may be making a link that you wouldn't make, or maybe you did, which is part of what I'm trying to get at here. This idea that as humans we're visualizers, right? If, Mm. if the, the, the difference between um, practicing in real life and practicing in our mind is almost indistinguishable to the human brain. Huh. And any any elite athlete visualizes what they're doing. Um, we're, we've been taught to manifest things from the secret. We've been taught to visualize success before we go into any arena. Is this idea of inevitability of your idea, your passion, and getting people to to back you is it is that the root of it? Did you find that in your research, or where did this this idea of 
inevitability is it a sales pitch or is there something deeper there yeah yeah you know i I think it is i think it is such a good point i think it is something i think it is something deeper you know in the book we talk about it as you know we we need to put on our anthropologist hat right and instead of just our advocacy hat put on our anthropologist hat and think about like where is the world really headed and so it's it's really in the framing of how do you get people to you know get on board with your idea but i I do think it runs deeper and it comes back to sort of this idea that we were talking about before around conviction right and 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 building the conviction that you know it what what is going to happen as a result of of all the work you're putting into something is going to be some inevitable success and i think that there's a lot of power to that And and it's also related to you know one of the i think one of my favorite concepts and it's so simple in the book which is this idea of playing exhibition matches oh, i literally i'm literally open to that right now. <laughs> literally. I, I, no venue is too small for exhibition matches sorry yeah. keep going i mean to interrupt you no not at all i mean it, but it, it you know it's it's a constant theme which is that when we see people who seem to be these naturals these people who we, we really respect Oftentimes, they're the product of lots and lots and lots of practice. Um, in the book, we call these these exhibition matches, which are low-stakes practice sessions before you get into a high-stakes venue. And so I think the thing that, that, that backable people tend to do well is if I'm going to have these sloppy sort of moments, why don't I do them in front of friendly audiences before I get into the real thing? You know, there's a mantra that sort of came out of out of this research for me personally, which is that long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. But you might as well have that embarrassment happen in front of these low-stakes crowds, yeah. right? And 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 so they play lots and lots of these exhibition matches. And and there's a couple of I think you know important ground rules that I found have come out of have come out of these sort of watching people do these exhibition matches. And, and, and one of them is that when you're, when you're doing an exhibition match, and this could be in front of a, a friend or a family member, and again, this is just you giving the presentation or giving the interview or giving the pitch that you're going to give when you, when you get in front of the real audience, but giving it in front of a friendly, don't give them the director's commentary version. Don't, don't, don't say things like, well, here's what I'm planning on doing, and then I would do this, and then I would do that. Give them the real version, like the real exact thing, right? And that is what actually prepares you and gives you the muscle memory to be effective inside the room. Mm. The second thing is that, you know, when we, when we give an exhibition match, oftentimes, you know, we'll, we'll ask somebody or we'll share an idea or, you know, a pitch with a friend and we'll say, hey, what did you think? Right. And what I found is that the, the question, what did you think, very rarely gets us the <laughs> feedback that we need. Right. I love that section of the book. You're like, just don't ask this. <laughs> don't ask that. Don't ask it because it's such a low signal question. It just does it. Like people just they're, they're typically like, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it's pretty good. You know, I, I liked it. A much more precise question is to is to ask what moments stood out to you most. Yeah. Right. Because that then they really have to think about, all right, what really resonated with me? And it gives you much better signal. Or actually, one of my favorites is to ask someone like Chase, if I was giving you a pitch right now, I would definitely ask you to do this. I would say, could you describe back to me what you just heard? Exactly. I think that's brilliant. Um, I identify deeply with that. I, I think that's the ability if I'm teaching someone something and I'm like, okay, now you you teach it to me because then I immediately see where their knowledge gaps are. Uh, yeah. It's a very, it's a very powerful framework for sure. Yeah, and chances are you would explain my idea 
better than I could explain my idea. Right? And I'm going to, I'm going to pick up, like I was doing this when I was writing backable in the early days, I was going to people like Daniel Pink and I, I talked to Neil Strauss about it. And the way that they were describing my own work was more compelling than the way that I was describing my own work. And so I used it. I'm like, great. Thank you. A lot of that, <laughs> a lot of that went to the back flap. It's true. It's true. I think this idea of, and I feel like the, um, getting feedback from people who have done the work before having them explain it to you as just go back to your commentary around Tim, right? He was able to say, gosh, that part right there was so compelling because you know, th they've heard so many pitches and they know where, whether they're either fired up or not. And what about the thing, um, captured their head, mind, heart, soul, this idea of, um, I'm going to share a personal example here. When I, I, so many of the concepts in my book or with creative live or have come off when I've come off stage or when I'm, uh, and, and there's, you know, an extra hundred people who stay after the show to talk because I'm eyeball to eyeball with them. And when I say something like, you know, um, the most important words in the world are the ones you say to yourself and someone, they're just, you know, their, their eyes pop out or they take a note and they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. You know, like you get to road test that. And I've said things, you know, hundreds of thousands of things that people are just like, they, they bounce off their forehead or their shoulders and they're never to be said again. But I just want to underscore this idea. And you, you gave a couple of different examples and you call in the book, you call it low stakes, but like this with friends and family and who, what gets people's attention, what makes them say, say, wait, wait, say that again. Yeah. What are those moments? That's where there's this, uh, you know, that turns me the question, you know, or the commenter into the excavator. Like I want to know, okay, cool. I watched you take notes then, or if you're talking and you're to a crowd and everyone's head goes down and they take the same note. Yeah. You know, this idea of, of mental cues. So it, it's so, it's so, it's so interesting, but by, by the way, because it, again, all roads lead back to creative live that, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that talk, that, that class that I, that I listened to with Neil and Tim, mm -hmm. he said something very similar, which is that when he, when Neil writes his books and he gets to sort of close to final draft, one of the things he'll do is he'll read the book word for word in front of someone in front of a friend but he will ask them not to interject with any type of feedback instead what he's doing is he's paying very very close attention to how they're acting to their body language and he's taking little notes to himself in the margins as they do it oh interesting you know chase usually nods but he didn't nod at all during that section right <laughs> And so interesting, you know, and, and he'll take those little notes because, yeah, I mean, we get so much from those from those nonverbal cues. I don't know if I ever told you this before. You know, I, I, I was raised in large part by my grandmother who who did not speak a lick of English, nothing. And oh, I and and, uh, and and I she you know, my, my mom is a refugee. And, and, and so they, they they came from this sort of this middle ground between Pakistan and India right after the countries split into two. And uh, and. I could not speak her dialect. And so I was raised by somebody who I could not communicate with, with words. And as a result of that, we just paid very, very close attention to each other's behaviors. And it, it was interesting because I always found it to be annoying as a kid, 
But years later, I was in a, I was getting feedback from a boss, and he was like, "You seem to have this ability, and and other people have picked up on this to to read people really, really well." Um, he's like, "I just wanted to mention that," and and that was something that continued to come up over and over again. And I always sort of thought, "All right, well, you know, I guess I'm pretty good at that." And it wasn't until years later, I'm like, "Wait a second. I was I was literally at my grandmother's funeral, and I was thinking to myself, I remembered how her and I would communicate through these nonverbals, and." She's the one who taught me how to do that. That's incredible. This idea of um, having mentors leads me to a piece of the book uh, that I recall about uh, a, having your circle. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if, like, this is this is not new, but this concept of when I hear people talk about pitching their idea and it's it's there are all sorts of op- opportunities and all sorts of places and ways and whether you're pitching your idea in an elevator to a venture capitalist or trying to get your boss to give you an extra day off or like there's you know pitching is like this this concept we think of it just as like getting funding for a startup but as you 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 lay out it's like it's it's everywhere it's it's the ability sort of to connect and persuade i see a huge disconnect with people believing that in in just being absolutely cold now this is a skill to be absolutely cold and to get someone to persuade someone to lean in that's you know that's a craft that is as you talked about they've done many rehearsals all kinds of practice but so much of this is around building relationships and in the book you know i I talk about it as community in your in your book you talk about it as uh, a backable circle yeah. and and when you uncover this a little bit you start to find out that wow you know i thought that was you know this is this is tied to imposter syndrome it's inside all, all sorts of things but give us your concept of your 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 backable circle yeah yeah you know one of the things that i realized is that uh, backable people tend to surround themselves with a with a trusted group of people that that, that are they're constantly sort of going to and bouncing ideas off of and and oftentimes these are long-standing relationships like I think when people find someone who for that circle they really nurture that and they tend to do a good job making sure that they're keeping in touch and keeping that relationship intact one of the things I thought was interesting as I started to deconstruct these circles is I realized that there are four, four different types of personalities that always seem to be in everybody's circle. And I like to, I like to call these the four C's. So the first is your, your collaborator, right? This is someone in your life who you can always go to with an idea and they're going to build on top of it. They're, they're using language like yes. And when you're with them, you feel like you're in a musical jam session. The second is your coach and your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator has a lens of thinking about whether your idea or what your plan is is going to fit the market or fit the company or fit your community, whatever you're trying to, to do. Your coach is really thinking about, like, does this actually fit you? Because whenever when we're trying to do something new, you know, it takes a lot of energy. You're going to be on the receiving doubt of you're receiving end of doubts and rejections. And, mm-hmm. you know, you need to have enough gas in the tank. And you can only do that if that idea makes you come alive. Yeah. And and so the coach is somebody who knows you intimately well enough to be able to say, like, yeah, this is a fit for you. Like, my wife is my coach, and I bring her ideas all the time. And she'll constantly say to me, like, 
look, this is a good idea for someone else, right? Like, I, you're not going to want to spend five years doing this. Yeah, it'll probably work, but it's not something that I can see you doing and being excited about 12 months from now. And that's the value of a coach. The third C is your cheerleader. And it, and it may sound a little bit sappy, but we all we all need someone who we can just call and know like they are going to they are going to give us a pick me up. Like they're going to give us that little bit of juice that we need. Uh, one of the people that I profiled for the book was Ellen Levy, who Fast Company magazine called the most connected woman in Silicon Valley, right? And and she got members of Congress and Fortune 500 CEOs in her Rolodex. But when I asked her, who do you call? before you walk into a huge meeting, a key moment, she's like, that's easy. I call my mom. Right, so I, I think we all need this cheerleader yeah. in our lives. And then the fourth, which is my favorite, is your critic, but I like to call this person your cheddar. And the reason I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, and I'm, I'm coming to you right now from Detroit, and if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, Eminem is surrounded by a circle of friends in that movie. And they're all kind of building him up, except for one, this guy named Cheddar, who's constantly kind of poking holes in Eminem's ideas. And what we realize throughout the film is that it's really Cheddar who is getting Eminem ready for the stage. And I think we all have like a Cheddar in our life. This is, this is somebody who has our best interest at heart. Yeah. But they're not, they're, not, they're not afraid to point out our blind spots. And, you know, while cheddar can be annoying at times, right, yeah. we, 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 don't, we don't like to have holes poked in our ideas, um, it, is, it is cheddar who ends up getting us ready for the room. And so backable people embrace, embrace their cheddar. This idea of having these people in your circle, I want to define circle because in a way, what the, the story, um, you, you, Tim Ferriss it happens to be a very dear friend. He's been on the show many times. I've been on his. Um, I don't know if you, you and him are close, but what I heard you talk about earlier is when he rejected your pitch to yeah. invest, you like one of the most valuable things that sound like in your process, because in order to, you had to get backers and then have backers and then build the company in order to sell it. Like it seemed like that was a really important thing. And so what role it seems like, I want to understand a little bit more about this concept of circle because everybody feels like the circle of their closest friends used examples like, you know, your mom, for example. But in a way, would you would you consider, you know, in this case, Tim, or could people who are listening or watching consider, you know, online mentors, people who are willing to poke holes, um, or even if you know you can be a part of a mastermind or a, some uh, yeah. sort of a online group group, define yeah, so. find add a little more meat to the concept of circle. Yeah, I think it can be people that you meet in a mastermind group. I think it can be people that you meet online. I think that, the, the, you know, there's a couple of qualities of a circle. I think one is that it's not just a transactional relationship, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a one-time thing. This is something that that is that is that you repeat. You know, it's, it's a long-term relationship. You're investing in it. I think the other quality of a circle is that you're part of their circle as well, right? They're part of yours, and, and, and it's a circle. It's not a line. You know, um, I... I, I I think we may have talked about this briefly, Chase, when we chatted last, but I took a trip to Bhutan a couple of years ago, and uh, this idea of a circle really came up while I was out there. And the, re the, way, the way it came up is that Bhutan is, is one of the only, I think it's the only country in the world that measures itself based on what they call gross national happiness. So, you know, economic growth, GDP is a factor 
but it all rolls up into something bigger, which which they define as like the, the happiness ultimately of their people. And you know, it's been going. They've been measuring, doing this metric now for over 50 years. And I got a chance to spend time who are with people who are in the field doing this research. And I asked them, when you're when you're talking to to people, is there a question? Is there a single question that you can ask that can really give you a good sense of someone's happiness? And they said, yeah. As a matter of fact, there is. And the question is, if you were in real trouble right now, who could you call? and know with 100% certainty that person would be there for you. And they believe that people who can answer that question are much more likely to be happy. But there's a twist. And the twist is, whose list are you on? Who can call you and know with 100% certainty you will be there for them? It isn't. It isn't. In other words, a line, but it's a circle. We're building this. We're building this sense of community that I know you talk about a lot, right? Where, where you're there for me, and I'm there for you, and we both know that. And I think that's the qualities of 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 of, ha- of having really good people in your circle. It's so crazy how just community is so powerful. I mean, that's if I'm not mistaken, that's you know very early in the book, and I'm gonna actually might even be in the marketing copy here that. Uh, I got an advanced copy of this, folks, just to let you know. Meaner. Um, but it's out now. And congratulations. I saw it hit uh, one number one on the new releases. Thank one of the you. Categories. That was awesome. Um, but yeah, here it is. It's the first line of the, the copy in the flap. No one makes it alone. Um, there's a reason some people can get investors or bosses to believe in them while others cannot. And that reason has little to do with experience, pedigree, or polished business plan. Backable people seem to have a hidden quality that inspires others to take action. We often chalk this up to natural talent or charisma. Either you have it or you don't. And that is the mission and vision of the book. But it's so true. Like nobody makes it alone. We all need these folks. And yet the folks, again, when I'm, you know, either talking to people who are trying to get something off the ground or someone wants to pitch me their idea or I walk off the stage or I see in the internet, someone's, you know, adding me. It's like, there's this belief that, um, that the work alone gets the job done. Hmm. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just there's so much good work out there that never sees the light of day or, you know, it, it, it gets dismissed. I mean, you know, right now, as we're as we're sort of hopefully kind of at the tail end of this pandemic, you know, we, we the world is focused on vaccines. And I think we've been taking a look at sort of other vaccines and other breakthrough medical moments. And, you know, just the other day I was talking to an audience about the story of penicillin. And, you know, it's a fascinating story because. Alexander Fleming, who was a physician, came up with penicillin in the 1920s. And at that time, hundreds of thousands of people were dying every year because their wounds were becoming infected. And there was literally nothing in a doctor's toolkit to save them. So he comes up with the cure. He's got it. He goes to pitch investors. And, you know, he went to this, this place called the Medical Research Club of London. And he was turned down. He was dismissed. And so, you know, he, he, pitched a, he pitched a couple of others, same result. He, he ends up taking his invention and he puts it on a shelf and he walks away. And it wasn't until 10 years later that another physician, a guy named Dr. Flory, comes along and says, hey, like, 
you published this article, and I think you might actually have found the cure for this problem. And it's getting really bad now because we're in the middle of World War II, and and you know it's just it's out of control. And so Flory convinces Fleming to partner with him, and they take it out together. And that's how they end up getting investors on board. They get pharmaceutical companies. They get retailers on board. And eventually they make it into something that you can you can find at the local pharmacy. And to date, I mean, penicillin has saved nearly 200 million lives. Uh, but it was an invention that was turned down for 10 years. <laughs> it's it, the electric car shot down for, we know why, but like, God, it's just these patterns repeat themselves. Yes. All right. Um, I have one last question, and then I've got a, a couple of comments, and I want to uh, – I'm going to say two last questions. But my first, my last, first of the last two is uh, there's a concept in the book called the rule of 21, and I, I think it's worth sharing just as a little nugget, a little sneak peek in, yeah. into the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, Charlie Parker – the great jazz musician has this quote and he was, he was on stage and he was, he was performing. And he, as he was walking off stage, somebody walked up to him and said, Hey Charlie, like, how do you do it, man? Like, how do you, how do you have such great stage presence? And he says to him, well, you got to learn your instrument and then you practice, practice, practice. And then when you get up there on stage, you forget all of that and you just wail. And I, I and I love that. And I love that line because you know, basically captures so much of backable just in 30 seconds, which is frustrating, right? I spent five years writing this book and Charlie <laughs> Parker just like, but, but, <laughs> but, but the, it, 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 again, it kind of comes back to this idea that like practice is, is, is something that we don't see people do. Right. And mm -hmm. so we kind of assume that they're, that they're naturals. And one of the hesitations that, that I found, or one of the hesitations I had was that if you over practice, if you practice too much, are you going to come off sounding mechanical? But then I found that 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 the average backable person, especially when it comes to anything new, a new presentation, a new type of pitch, they were practicing 21 times before they walked into the room. And what I found is that it doesn't actually make you less natural. It actually makes you more natural. Why? Why is that? Well, because when you when you've mastered something at that level, well, then you actually have the ability to walk into the room and forget yourself and just wail, right? Because now you're not married to your script anymore. You're not, you don't have this sort of map in your mind where you're like, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say that and then I'm going to say that. You can kind of let that go and you can be fully tuned in to what's happening in the room. You can be completely present with the other people who are there. And that's where backable moments happen. That this idea of mastery is so compelling, and everybody we want to show off as being great at so many things. And the reality is, if you look at people who are great at so many things, they've they first mastered something, then they understood mastery. And this idea of mastering, this is one of what I loved about the book, is this idea that this concept of practice is so simple and so trite. But to know the material front and back, to be you know, to Charlie Parker, your instrument and the song, like that is what mastery looks like. It's not a, it's not a willingness not to make mistakes. It's this ability to immediately recover such that it seemed absolutely natural. And this goes for photography, uh, for writing, for certainly, you know, public speaking, for any sort of performance for sure. And I believe in, in building companies, 
in launching ideas and in getting people to, you know, latch on to, to your idea. Um, thanks for that, Charlie Parker. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie Parker. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, again, congratulations on the book. Um, it's as someone who's raised venture capital and has been trying to get people as an artist my whole life to back basically things that haven't been made yet. Right. I'm, if you're going to hire me to take pictures for your campaign or build a business with you, neither of those things happen before you have to, you know, get on board before those pictures happen. Um, I just, it, it resonated deep with me. Congratulations. It's a really important work. I'll say the title again here for anyone who's listening, uh, backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Uh, Sunil, one final question. And that is give us a, a macro takeaway. You know, there's a lot to digest in this book. I think you've done a nice job. There's even a little, um, as I'm turning back here, there's even a cool appendix where you've done some summary work, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Let's g- give us something to yeah. grasp onto as we ride into the sunset together here. Yeah, well, I it's it, you know you have kids, Chase, and I do as well. I've got two little girls, one's eight and one's four, and you know during this pandemic we've been doing this little routine where every morning, uh, I ask them two questions. I ask them, "What is the meaning of life?" And they say, "To find your gift." And then I say, "Well, what is the purpose of life?" And they say, "To give it away." And it's all it's based on the Picasso. The Picasso quote, you know, which is to the meaning of life is to find your gift and the, and the purpose of life is to give it away. And I love that. And I, and I really think backable is very much at its core about how we give our gift away. How do we take what's inside of us and how do we share it with the outside world and, you know, make sure that we don't have unused creativity inside of us. Um, but I think that there are three words that I found that, that tend to hold us back. And, and those three words are I'm not ready. I'm I'm not ready to run with that idea. I'm not ready to step into that leadership role. I'm not ready to speak my mind. And the, I guess if there's one macro takeaway uh, from my past five years uh, of studying hundreds of extraordinary people, it's that none of them were really ready. Three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A mid-level talent manager was not ready to 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 start SoulCycle. A 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, was not ready to build an environmental movement, and yet today, Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. And like, don't get me wrong, there were there were setbacks and mistakes and failures along the way, but they all seem to adopt what I call in the game, the book, the game of now. And in the game of now, the opposite of success is not failure; it's boredom. So I'll leave you with that. Sunil, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, on the faculty at Harvard, wrote the book Backable. I encourage you all to check it out. Uh, there is true wisdom. Uh, congrats uh, on a great launch. And um, I appreciate you being on the show and putting your work out there into the world. Um, thanks again, man. And what, any other coordinates where you want to steer us, uh, how to pay attention to you and or more of your work besides just the book? I just, yeah, just go to, you can go to backable.com, B-A-C-K-A-B-L-E.com, and you'll find some free content out there. Come check it out.
Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. And for everybody out there, I hope you have an amazing day. And uh, from yours truly and Sunil, we bid you adieu. Thank you, Chase. All right, that's it for today's show. But hey, before you go, I wanted you to know that I am so grateful to have your ears, your attention, and have you be a part of the community around this show. I love reading all your messages, the texts that come in, the questions, feedback, stories, guest ideas. It's I I devour every one of your comments. Uh, I respond as often as possible. And, you know, these are my my thumbs tapping these things out on social uh, and my phone number on the other side of the text. Oh, you probably just in case you don't know that. Did you know you can text me 206 309 5177 with any feedback? And it's actually well, the first one's automated, but then that's actually my thumbs on the end of that. Um, Again, I just want you to know that this show, I make this show for you and for me. And this community has been a driving force in my life for more than 10 years now. Uh, I've listened to you. I listen to your ideas and I do everything I can to make them come to life. So thank you for participating. Uh, my ears and eyes and thumbs are, are out there on the Internet trying to make this happen. I just want you to know how grateful I am. And I want you to stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Mm-hmm.